Welcome to AQR's The Curious Investor. I'm Dan Villalon. And I'm Gabe Figali. On this show, we break down some of the most important ideas in finance to help us make better investment decisions. On The Curious Investor, we're going to explore a range of topics, from active versus passive investing, to machine learning, to superstar investors. And in this very first episode, we're going to take a look at human behavior and why it is that investors do some pretty silly things. We're all susceptible to irrational and predictable mistakes. And today, we've got an all-star cast to walk us through some of them. I'm Toby Moskowitz. I'm a principal at AQR Capital, also the Dean Takahashi Professor of Finance and Economics at Yale University. I'm Nick Barberis, and I'm a professor of finance at the Yale School of Management. And our favorite 2017 Nobel Prize winner is also here. Hi, I'm Richard Thaler from the University of Chicago, and I study dumb stuff people do. Welcome, listeners, to the wild and irrational world of behavioral economics. Richard Thaler was one of the first people to study what we now refer to as behavioral economics. And you'd think that since this field is based on, well, us humans, Richard's work wouldn't be that controversial. But you'd be wrong. When you first started coming up with these ideas, it was borderline blasphemous. Were you almost scared to talk about these things in, in the world of investing, especially in academia? Let's just say that workshops were exciting uh, in those days. As I say in my book, Misbehaving, I think the trouble we got into was we were the first people to write about it and not apologize. In the traditional view of economists, humans act rationally, at least on average. But that's not what Richard was seeing. So he started making a list. It wasn't your typical list of observations. It was a list of silly things, weird things, funny things just sort of celebrating the strangeness of humanity. And he was trying to make sense of it all. But initially it was dumb stuff people do. Here's a quick example. Cab drivers. Richard and his colleague Colin Kammerer were visiting New York a lot in the 90s, and they were taking lots of cabs. We talked to the cab drivers. And one question we started asking them is, how do you decide how long to work? Cab drivers paid a fixed fee each day to rent the cabs they drove. The rental block was for 12 hours. The driver got to keep the meter amount and the tips. So we said, well, how, how do you decide when to quit? And a lot of them would say, well, what I do is I have a target. And maybe I want to make $200 above costs. And when I hit that, I go home. Now, that doesn't sound like a particularly stupid thing to do. Have a goal and work to meet it, right? If you say it that way, it makes total sense. But the implication of it is you work longer on days with low wages than on days with high wages. The rational thing to do as a driver would be to work long days when you're busy and go home early when no one is taking cabs. That should maximize the money you make compared to the hours you work, right? But it turns out that our natural tendency is to do the opposite of that. Collecting stories from cab drivers and loads of other sources would eventually shed light on some pretty big topics in economics. Studies like these would help build the foundation of behavioral economics and help Richard win a Nobel Prize in 2017. But way before Richard won the Nobel, he was just a young academic who challenged traditional economics. One big point of contention 
was with a concept called expected utility theory. The gist of expected utility theory is that when people face risk, they make decisions rationally. Meaning, they calculate all the possible outcomes, multiply them by how likely they are to occur, and voila. We have lots of people making rational decisions. And for a long time, economists have thought that maybe that's how investors do process risk. And I have to say, that's where we part ways. That's Nick Barbaris, a professor at the Yale School of Management. It may be the rational way to process risk, but I'm not sure it's the way people actually process risk. Nick is also a behavioral economist. So, like Richard Thaler, he believes that there's a better model out there to process risk and make decisions. Nick believes this better way to understand humans is based on a concept called prospect theory. This prospect theory developed by very famous psychologists Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, that that's a much better description of how people actually process risk. Expected utility says people are focused on final wealth outcomes, whereas prospect theory is saying, no, it's actually gains and losses that are the primary focus. Kahneman and Tversky's prospect theory would become a pretty big deal. And it sort of threw the academic and investing worlds for a loop because it changed the way we think about how people invest. So expected utility will tend to predict that people will invest a significant chunk of their money in stocks because they'll notice that stocks tend to have a high average return and have a relatively low correlation with other household risks. But what the expected utility theory is missing is that people actually focus on gains and losses and are much more sensitive to potential losses than to potential gains. And once you take that into account, you realize that people, many people could be scared out of the stock market. Okay, so what Nick is saying is people actually make decisions not by focusing on the end result, but by weighing gains and losses. And it's not just that. People actually value gains and losses very differently. A lot of the groundbreaking research on this was done a few decades ago by Richard Thaler and some mugs. You've got a small box in front of you there, and that's a gift from us. This is an AQR mug. Ah, Uh, excellent. Hopefully... Uh, This is worth more to you than its fair market value. (laughs) Um, No comment. (laughs) Richard knows we're setting him up for a trap. He and other colleagues wrote a paper in 1991 that proposed why someone might overvalue something like a mug. It's called the endowment effect. It's the idea that once you have something, you're reluctant to give it up. But before you have it, you're not that anxious to get it. So we conducted these experiments where half the people got a coffee mug and half the people didn't. And then we conducted markets in these mugs. All that meant is people filled out a little form at each of the following prices. Will you buy a mug if you don't have one? Will you sell it if you do have one? And what we found was the people with mugs demanded about twice as much to give their mug up as the people who didn't have a mug were willing to pay for it. And that meant most of the people who ended up with mugs are people who started out with mugs. According to economic theory, that shouldn't happen. The endowment effect says if you already own something, you're less willing to give it up. Here's another example. Let's say I won backstage tickets to my favorite band. Woohoo! Retail value is $400. And then say someone wanted to buy those tickets from me. I know they're worth $400, but this is my favorite band. I'd probably ask for something like $600 to resell them. But here's another scenario. 
If I'd never won the tickets, but I saw them online for $400, I'd probably say, eh, that's a bit pricey. I'm going to pass. See the difference? They're the exact same tickets. But in one scenario, you valued the tickets at more than $400, and in another scenario, you valued them at less than $400. The product hasn't changed, but you have. Once you own those tickets, they feel like they're worth more. That's the endowment effect. The underlying behavior is what we call loss aversion. Roughly speaking, losing something hurts about twice as much as getting it makes you feel good. Sometimes we hate to lose what we own so much that it seeps into our decision-making. Toby Moskowitz, a professor at Yale and principal here at AQR, has documented lots of examples of this. And he doesn't sugarcoat it. Once you've paid for something, the money's gone. I actually had this uh, argument recently with a family member who had bought a plane ticket and they were going to be heading into this ice storm that hit the Midwest and, and lower Canada. And the family member said, I should just not go because I know I'm going to get stuck there. But I paid for the ticket and I'm not going to get my money back if I don't go. So they went and now they're stuck. <laughs> <laughs> Toby's family member had already bought the plane ticket. But whether or not they use it should be an independent decision. The reality is people don't think of it that way. Toby is describing what economists call a sunk cost. Here's how it works in the markets. Say you bought a stock for $100 and it goes down to $80. You really don't want to sell this stock at a loss. It's like having to admit you made a bad decision. So you hang on and sort of cross your fingers that it'll go back up. On the other hand, if you'd bought the same stock for $70, you'd probably be more than willing to sell it at 80 In theory, it shouldn't really matter what price you bought it at. But for us, you know, irrational humans, it does make a difference in our decision-making. Another bias that affects us humans is overconfidence. Nick Barbaris has a bubble to burst. You're not as good as you think you are. It's the thing in those surveys where, you know, 80% of people believe themselves to be above average on things like, you know, attractiveness or driving ability, ability to get along with people, sense of humor and so on. And of course, we can't all be above average. A lot of us must be deluding ourselves. And this overconfidence bias has important implications in finance and investing. It can help us understand why for decades there's been such heavy trading volume in financial markets. And the idea is, look, overconfident people are just going to trade more because they always think they're on the right side of the trade. And it can also help us explain why there's so much acquisition activity among firms, even though the average returns to acquiring firms are pretty low. The idea here is that CEOs, some CEOs, are overconfident. And while they may know that the typical acquisition doesn't go very well. They think that they're better than all of the other CEOs and that they can make the acquisition work even though everyone else has failed. Overconfidence can also influence how we buy and sell stocks, and not just for individual investors. Toby Moskowitz saw this even on investment boards. People think they have way more precise information than they do. They would be so confident that this stock was such a strong buy. And then we'd revisit that three months later, and it was clear that it hadn't gone the way that they had thought. Um, and instead of sort of saying, okay, you know, something else happened or, or, you know, we were wrong about this, they were still wedded to it. It sounds like a lot of people are making some pretty suboptimal decisions because of their own irrational biases. But there's an obvious flip side to this. If you know all about behavioral economics, 
Maybe you can take advantage of other people's biases and make totally rational decisions when you invest. Which brings us back to Richard Thaler, who must beat the market every time, right? Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I never thought that, and certainly haven't thought that in the 20 years or so I've been associated with a money management firm called Fuller & Thaler Asset Management. We've been successful, but even our most successful products don't beat the market every year. Even Richard Thaler, one of the founders of the field of behavioral economics, can't beat the market all the time. And that's also true when you look at the best long-term track records in investing. They don't beat the market every year. We've spent this episode discussing some of the most common biases that creep into our investment decisions. Dan, tell me the truth. Are we all doomed? Well, it's not all bad. Lucky for us, being aware of these biases is the best first step we can take. And there's some practical things we can do. Here's the first tip from Nick Barbaris. Once you hear that human beings tend to be overconfident, then maybe you sort of try to stop being quite so overconfident yourself. Next time you think that you're better than average on some dimension, you sort of say, wait, everyone thinks they're better than average. (laughs) Here's another tip. Be your own devil's advocate. Anytime you're forming a belief or about to make a decision, force yourself to write down the three reasons why the belief might be mistaken or why the decision might turn out poorly. That has been shown to reduce overconfidence. Another simple technique is to force yourself to explain your reasoning in public. Because if you have to explain yourself in public, it forces you, I think, to discipline your thinking to remove any logical errors. The next tip, prior successes don't always help when it comes to decision making. Someone who's near the top of an organization has been promoted many times in a row. And what we know is that people tend to give themselves too much credit for their successes. So actually, there's a lot of reason to think that people who rise to the top may actually be more overconfident than other people because they've attributed so much of their past success to their own ability and talent. Okay, last up for our hot tips on how to become a more rational human don't fall in love with a stock or a mug just because you own it. Again, Toby Moskowitz. If we can't come up with a good reason why we don't want to sell, that reason might be a bias or or an emotional attachment, in which case we're probably wrong. We tell this to our kids, right? Just admit you did it wrong. It's fine. You won't get yelled at. Don't pretend you did it right. All this really means is that as an investor, you need to be disciplined and you need to be humble about your decisions. And that advice of admitting that you did something wrong, well, it's easier said than done. But for Nick, it's actually worked out pretty well. One reason I think that I quite enjoy doing behavioral finance is I find myself exhibiting all of these biases that I write about. You know, it's uh, not that hard for me to write a research paper. I just introspect about the latest mistake I've made and, <laughs> uh, and then just follow up with that. On the next episode, we'll dive into the world of factors what they are, why they work, and how to use them. You know, you have stock returns moving all over the place, and it seems like there's no order to the madness. But I would say there's probably some order and some disorder to financial markets. Factors sort of drive some of that order. Thanks for listening to The Curious Investor. If you want to learn more about silly things investors do, check out our website at aqr.com slash curious. 
You can also email us at curious at aqr.com. Until next time, everyone, I'm Gabe Figali. And I'm Dan Villalon. Stay humble and stay curious, my friends. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of AQR itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice, and it should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions, which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. AQR does not assume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of AQR as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including any direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2018, AQR Capital Management, LLC. All rights reserved. It is uh, humbling to be there with these physics guys that detected gravity waves from some explosion a hundred billion years ago. I was teasing them that it took them a long time to find it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you get a prize for that after yeah. all that time.